Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. I want to welcome you and welcome everyone watching on our uh, YouTube uh, live stream channel as well to, uh, to our Rosh Hashanah service. Rosh Hashanah is the beginning uh, of the High Holy Days, beginning of the 10 days of awe, the Nerim Yarmim. Uh, where we focused on the theme, as, as even as Les was giving us his word, on the theme of holiness. So I want to continue the, this all-important theme, uh, which we actually began last night, if you were here last night for our service. And if you weren't here and you missed part one of, of uh, holiness, I urge you to listen to the message when it comes out uh, on our YouTube channel uh, in about a week. For today, I want us to look at the theme of holiness and holy living from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. And we'll put that on the overhead. And, and uh, Kepha writes this. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Yeshua the Messiah is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, don't conform uh, to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy... So be holy in all that you do, as it's written. Be holy, kadosh, uh, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Amen. The scriptures say that when we're truly born again, we become new creations with a new heart and a new spirit. Uh, so we don't just turn over a new leaf. Uh, but we're spiritually raised with Messiah, as it says in Ephesians 2. And in Philippians 3, Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. So Yeshua's resurrection power comes into your life when you become a Messianic believer. Now, if we truly understood this, we would see how amazing and awesome and revolutionary this is. And so we want to ask, what does an empowered life look in Yeshua look like? What does a spiritually resurrected life look like? And according to our passage in 1 Peter 1, a new creation life is characterized by holiness. We're called to be holy. A very fitting theme of these high holy days as the shofar blast calls us to wake up, to consider our ways, to repent, to cleanse ourselves uh, through the blood of the Lamb, Yeshua the Messiah, the Lamb of God, and prepare for meeting with the Lord on the special day when he actually makes an appointment to meet with us. Rosh Hashanah is called a Moedim, literally an appointed time. It's also called a, a Mikra Kodesh, uh, a holy convocation, where the Lord calls us to assemble ourselves together, to present ourselves before him, and according to the Jewish tradition, when the books in heaven are opened and the Lord judges our deeds over this past year and we pray for him to inscribe our names in the book of life for a good year to come. And the Lord says to us, 1 Peter 1 verse 15, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For as it's written, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now in our modern culture, words like sin and holiness they're almost never used anymore, except maybe ironically, like to describe sinfully good chocolate. <laughs> but if you actually start to talk about sin today, saying people are sinner, 
sins. People are sinners, though. This is sin. We need to be holy. If in contemporary society you start talking about sin uh, and holiness, saying you need to be holy, you need to stop sinning, people will get very quiet and very upset. Very upset. Uh, And you'll quickly be canceled (laughs) and censored and silenced. And people will be outraged and offended that you would dare to take these words from the Bible seriously as objective principles of life. But if we care about the word of God, we need to take these commands very seriously. So let me ask on the overhead uh, three questions today. Number one, what is holiness? Number two, how does it grow and develop in us? And number three, why is it possible to be holy? So so what is holiness? Uh, How does it grow in us? Uh, And how is it possible for us to to be holy? So so first, in the first place, what even is holiness? Look at uh, 1 Peter 1 verse 15 again. But just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. Now, one core aspect of holiness, the one we're probably most familiar with, uh, is morality. Uh, The Ten Commandments. Uh, just as God is faithful, for example, uh, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't gossip, which is being unfaithful to your neighbor. Or you shouldn't commit adultery, which is being unfaithful to your spouse. And just as God is loving, you shouldn't kill, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't cheat. That's being unloving uh, towards your neighbor. Uh, so one key aspect of holiness uh, is right living, uh, moral living, sexual purity. But that's not all that holiness means. Holiness involves righteousness, Yes. Definitely, but it's more than that. Notice that Peter here is actually quoting from the Torah. He's quoting from Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. And there are four times in the book of Leviticus where the Lord says, Be you holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But what's interesting is the main focus of the book of Leviticus is not holy people. It doesn't give you the Ten Commandments in Leviticus. No, that's in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Uh, rather, it's primarily talking about holy things. So in the book of Leviticus, there's all sorts of things uh, that are called holy. As we discussed last night, if you were here last night, uh, tables were called holy. Uh, Utensils, pots and pans uh, were called holy. So holiness can't mean just morality, because what does a moral table look like? (laughs) Uh, And what's an immoral table? (laughs) I wouldn't want want to eat at an immoral table. (laughs) So in addition to moral living, what else does the word holiness mean scripturally? The word kadosh in the Hebrew, holy, means separate, set apart. So on the overhead. Uh, so right away, we can see why God would say, I'm holy. Because he's utterly apart and separate from all other things. He's totally unique. He's in his own category. He's set apart. He's totally separate. He's unique in his superlativeness. There's none like him. So in one sense, when the Lord says, I'm holy, he means I am utterly set apart. There is no one like me. There is nothing like me. On the overhead, okay, then what does it mean to to have a holy table or or, or a holy pot? And the answer is, it's been set apart for God's exclusive use. If you have a table where you eat your meals uh, and and you want that, uh, that table to be holy, you don't go and read the, read it the Ten Commandments, try to get it to behave differently. No, you give it to the Kohanim, to the priests. They take it into the tabernacle, into the temple, 
And I would choose only for the holy fellowship offerings in the temple and other priestly duties. It's only used for God uh, and worshiping God. And right there we begin to realize when Peter quotes Leviticus to tell us how, how we should be holy, the implication is this is going beyond. It's not less than morality. It includes morality, but it's also going beyond morality. Here's what one commentator on the passage says, and we'll put it on the overhead. He says, of course, to be holy means moral behavior. But these words in Leviticus 11 that Peter quotes aren't given in the context of moral commands and prohibitions to people, but rather in the context of ceremonial restrictions dealing with clean and unclean things, the whore and tamay. For belonging to God, living on his terms, reserving ourselves to him, delighting in him, obeying him, honoring him, these are more fundamental than the specifics uh, that we label as morality. Now, on the overhead, there's the definition of holiness. What makes a table holy? It belongs to God. Okay, therefore, here's the implication. What makes you holy? Not only that you're, not just that you're moral. Of course, it does include that. But it ultimately means you belong to God. Now, let's think out the tremendous implications of this truth. So first we see that holiness is intensely personal. It's intensely personal on the overhead. It's possible to be moral for lots of different reasons. You can be moral out of a sense of duty. Uh, you can be moral because it makes you feel good about yourself. You can be a moral and good person because you're fulfilling uh, social and moral expectations. Or you can just be a pragmatist. Uh, honesty is the best policy. You can be moral because it's good business uh, to be moral. Uh, you're moral and truthful. You don't get caught doing bad things. You don't get sued for wrongdoing. So you just might be practical. But in all those cases, what's going on? You're being moral basically for selfish reasons. So it's possible, very possible, hear me well, to be moral and not belong to God. Because belonging to God has to do with your heart. There are very few people in my life or in yours uh, that I or you could honestly say, your claims of love are so great upon me that I, I really belong to you. I can't live just any way I like, uh, any way I want. I, be, I belong to you. Uh, in my case, it's my wife, my children. Uh, because you see, the claims of love are so great, I belong to them. And because I belong to them, there, there are things I do that I might not otherwise do on the overhead. Uh, and so today, I'm sorry, to belong to God it means you live on his terms, uh, to reserve yourself to him, uh, to delight in him, to obey him, to honor him. And I do it just because I want to. Uh, uh, I need to reserve myself to him. Uh, it's an intensely personal thing. Do you see this? And do you therefore see why it's not enough only to be moral? The Pharisees were moral. Uh, but they were far from God. Uh, in fact, Yeshua called them sons of the devil. Why? Because with them, there was no intimate, personal love relationship with the Lord. In fact, you can be moral and not even believe in God. But that, that, that's just my point. 
Being moral all by itself is not the ultimate goal or the ultimate good. The ultimate goal is a personal relationship with God through Yeshua the Messiah. Here's an example. Imagine a poor woman, a single mom, she has one son. She loves her son. Uh, She teaches him how to live. She says, I want you to always care for the poor, to always tell the truth, to always work hard. Uh, Charity, honesty, uh, and and, uh, industry. Care for the poor, uh, tell the truth, work hard. She sacrifices everything for him. She works her fingers to the bone for him, puts him through college with no debt, no student loans. But the minute he graduates from college, he gets his degree, he gets a good job, he calls her up and says, well, mom, I'll probably send you a birthday card now and then, but I really don't want much to do with you. I really don't need you anymore. Why, she says. Well, I always take care of the poor. Uh, I'm honest. I work hard. So I'm doing everything you want me to do. I'm obeying your commands. That's what's important, right? Why do I have to have a relationship with you, Mom? I really don't want to talk to you anymore. Now, would you think that's okay? Of course not. You would be horrified. You'd find his behavior, his attitude, utterly repulsive and disgusting and ungrateful and hateful. This kid is acting like a monster toward his mother. Now, if there's a God, you owe him everything. You you owe him everything, your loyalty, your devotion, your worship, your service, your obedience, your love, your gratitude, your total commitment and life. And you should sense that, that yes, I, I belong to him. And for you to say, all that's really important is I follow his commandments. All that's really important is I be moral. It's just like that kid saying, all that's really important is I follow your teachings, mom. But I don't need to have a relationship with you. Do you see how horrific that is? How horrific it is for you to say, I don't need God. God's not important in my life. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. That's what counts. Well, you may be moral on one level, but you're not holy. Because holiness means you're set apart for the Lord. And we're told this in Hebrews 12, 14. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So God looks at someone who's moral uh, but not holy. And he must feel, God must feel considerably worse uh, than that mother did in my example. So this quote from Leviticus, it drives home the point that holiness means to belong to God, not just to be outwardly moral on the overhead. So this gives us the core of holiness, which is number one, intensely personal. Now, number two, secondly, the core of holiness, the core of belonging to God, uh, this also gives us a principle for applying holiness in all of our life to belong to God. Because what's the opposite of belonging to God? It's to live for yourself. So what does it mean to be holy? To be moral? Yeah, that's part of it, but on the overhead. But more than that, it means to no longer live for yourself. That's the principle of holy practice. The principle of holy living. You no longer uh, live for yourself, but you live for God uh, and for your neighbor. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 19, perfectly puts this principle of holiness. 
It says you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. If you're committing your life to Yeshua and you are born again, then you are a recipient of grace. God's grace. And therefore, you're not your own. You should not be living for your sake, but for God's sake uh, and your neighbor's sake. You're not living for yourself. You're living for God and for your neighbor. And this principle of holiness has not changed with the coming of Messiah. It's laid out in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus. And now it's repeated here in the New Covenant Scriptures in 1 Peter. And to drive home the point that this principle has not changed, Peter sets forth this principle, how? By quoting the Torah, by quoting Leviticus on the overhead. And the principle is that every part of my life must be holy. There's no part that should not be holy. And to be holy means to belong to God. So, for example, in Ephesians 6, there's a place where Paul's talking about how people should do their daily work, uh, their daily job. Uh, now, do the Ten Commandments tell you how to do your work? No. Actually, they tell you how to rest, have a day of rest. Uh, but there's nothing about uh, how to do your work in the Ten Commandments. But here's what, here's what Paul does. Uh, he says, when you're doing your daily job, don't work for your boss. He says, don't work according to eye service. Don't work for your boss. Don't work for yourself. Because if you're working for your boss, you only work hard when he's watching you and he's noticing. Uh, when he's not around, you'll slack off. You only do what you have to do to give your boss a good impression of you. And if you're working for yourself, you only do what's necessary to make money or to make more money. But what if you're working for the Lord? What if your main motivation is, I know you're seeing me, Lord, and I want to please you. Uh, I want to use my gifts uh, in the best way possible. I, I want to do an excellent job. Uh, I want to help other people. I want to care for your creation. In other words, what if you're working for the Lord? If you're working for the Lord, you will work more diligently, uh, more conscientiously, uh, more cheerfully. Because you won't be living or dying for the approval of men. So working for the Lord, it transforms your work. Why? Because you're not living for yourself. You're not working for your boss. You're not working for yourself. You're working for the Lord. Now, if you apply that principle to every area of your life, for example, you don't treat others, whether individually or groups, uh, whether from your same or a different class or ethnic group, or race, if you don't treat others for your sake or even for their sake, but for God's sake, as men and women created in the image of God, then all your relationships will be redeemed and set apart and holy. By the way, that's one of the reasons this uh, thing called critical race theory uh, is so evil and ungodly and toxic. Because it categorizes everyone not as individuals, but as members of a group, based on the accident of your skin color, and thereby labels you either as an oppressor or the oppressed. And it locks you into this label, and there's no escape. It does not see you as an individual created in God's image. Rather, it sees you as just a cog in a machine, either part of the oppressed or the oppressor, with no chance of redemption or reconciliation or restoration. 
And there's no forgiveness. Uh, there was no love. Just an anti-God, Marxist ideology that seeks to pit uh, um, races and classes against each other and foment hate and division and warring factions. And we all know who the author of Hate and Division is. The one who comes to kill and steal and destroy. But in contrast, when we walk in God's holiness and separate ourselves because we've been bought with a price and we now belong to God, then we treat everyone as our fellow brothers and sisters, made in God's image. And therefore we live not for ourselves, but for the Lord's sake and our neighbor's sake. And this is why, and this is what, this, this mindset of living for God and, and, and everyone created in his image, this is what will redeem our relationships and heal our land. And the reason that Peter quotes in Leviticus is because he's figured this principle out. To be holy means you belong to God. And you therefore don't live for yourself anymore. And that principle of living for God and not for yourself, this can be applied everywhere. Uh, whether or not there's a specific commandment uh, on that issue. Just like Peter did with, with, with work. Or Paul did. Uh, so number one, that's uh, the overhead. Uh, that's what holiness is. Number two, then how does it grow? How does it develop in us? It develops three ways on the overhead. Three ways, mind, will, and heart. Um, we see all three of these in our passage. So first, mind. Look at First Peter 1.13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Messiah Yeshua is revealed at his coming. So first of all, if you want to be holy, then with minds that are, fully, that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you uh, when Yeshua is revealed at his coming. And you hear that trumpet sound, he's revealed. That shofar... This reference to mind, it means your intellect is engaged. It says, minds that are fully sober and alert. The word sober means to be very judicious. It means to be reflective and and careful. It describes the the mindset of a scholar. You know, lots of footnotes, uh, careful definitions, lots of qualifications, very careful, very reflective. The other word here is is alert. Uh, Minds that are sober and alert... Actually, the Greek doesn't say that. Literal Greek says, gird up your mind. Uh, in those days, men and women wore flowing robes. So when you had to do something very active, when you had to run, when you had to do physical labor, what did you do? You pulled up your robe, uh, you tucked it into your girdle, you tucked it into your belt. And therefore, to gird up your loins was a metaphorical, Hebraic way of saying, get ready for action. So what does it mean to gird up your mind, the loins of your mind? Uh, It's a vivid picture, meaning though you should be carefully thinking, fully sober, you should also be thinking unto action. You should be thinking out the implications of your faith very carefully, but to the ultimate end goal of action. And as we've seen, uh, for example, that's what Paul was doing uh, in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, let's think out the implications of what it means if you're not living for yourself but for God. How does that transform my work? And he's thinking it out. And in our passage, Peter's saying, that's what you need to be doing. To be holy is not first a matter of the will, but first you've got to use your mind, you've got to think. So again, 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Yeshua the Messiah is revealed at his coming. This is talking about the end of time, 
Yeshua's going to return. He's going to make everything new. Peter says, think out the implications of that. Constantly meditate and contemplate that. What does it mean to live for him? You should set your hope on Yeshua's return. And doing that, it should affect your life here and now. It should purify you. Here's another example. Uh, Philippians 4. Paul says, have the peace of God in your heart. Be anxious for nothing. Trust the Lord. You belong to God. Trust in him. Don't be anxious or fretting or upset or or ill at ease. So look at Philippians 4 verse 7. Uh, and And then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Messiah Yeshua. And then he says, so think on these things. Think on these things. Think on these truths that you believe as a Yeshua follower. It's very close to what Peter's saying here in 1 Peter 1.13 when he says, set your hope. Set your hope means you get your hope, you get your confidence, you get your peace by thinking out what you believe about Yeshua and his return. As a Yeshua follower, what do you believe about the universe? Uh, for example, do you know what the Bible says? God created a perfect world. Uh, but that because we turned away from him, our world is now broken. But God, in the form of Yeshua the Messiah, has come into our world and at infinite cost to himself has died on the tree, the execution stake for your sins, and that someday he will return to judge mankind and set everything right again. Do you know what that means? It means that no matter what happens to you, if you are in the Messiah Yeshua, it is going to be okay. If you repent and and trust in him, that when you'll die, you'll be with him. So the worst thing that can happen to you, think out the implications of your belief, the worst thing that can happen to you, death, is the best thing that can happen to you. (laughs) Uh, And at the end of time, Yeshua is going to establish his kingdom and make everything right. Do you have shalom? peace right now do you have hope do you have confidence or are you anxious if you're anxious it's because you're not thinking out the implications of your faith if you're a believer but you're constantly in stress and anxious it's because you're not thinking out what your faith means messianic faith is a thinking faith it is not a blind faith you won't be holy you won't have peace you won't be able to live the life you're called to unless you think out the implications of your faith. So that's the first thing. Sure, faith engages uh, your entire intellect. Uh, but this, isn't, uh, this, this is actually not true of most non-believers. So for example, take this typical secular person today. They say, I don't believe in God. Uh, I think this life is all there is. So you believe that love, for example, is just a chemical, right? Uh, the feeling of love, it's just an illusion. It's just a chemical reaction that help your ancestors to survive and to propagate the species. And when you die, that's it. And eventually, no one is even going to be around to remember anything that you ever did. And one day the sun will die and, and no one will be left. So nothing you do in the end makes any difference. And love is an illusion. And when you die, you rot. And the typical secular person then says, well, if you're going to think all about it like that, then of course you'll be depressed. <laughs> But I don't think about it like that. I just try to live one day at a time. In other words, the the secular person says, uh, who doesn't believe in God, uh, they're getting their peace by not thinking out the implications of their belief. By not thinking. Well, we Yeshua followers, we're the opposite. 
We get our peace by thinking out the implications of what we believe. So number one, you grow in holiness, uh, you have to use your minds on the overhead. Number two, you've got to also engage your will. So look at 1 Peter 1.14, next verse. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. This is talking about your will, your desires. To be holy means you obey. Peter says, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you used to live in ignorance. He's especially in the context here addressing the Gentiles who didn't know the law of God, didn't know the Ten Commandments. They lived in ignorance. But now in Yeshua, they do know the law of God. Uh, And so Peter reminds them to obey and to flee evil desires that enslaved them in the past. So there's a required engagement of your will. You must choose to obey. And the Lord... Uh, will hold you accountable for your choices. But also, no, Peter doesn't just talk about, uh, doesn't just call us obedient subjects. What does he call us? Obedient children. He's talking about the unconditional, absolute, trusting obedience that little children give to their parents. He's talking about children in in a normal, healthy home who naturally rely on and instinctively love their parents. So here's an example. When David became king, uh, the Philistines were worried that he's going to turn Israel into the strong nation. So as soon as he was crowned king, the Philistines invaded. David was forced to flee into the wilderness uh, with his band of mighty men. The Philistines occupied much of Israel, including his hometown uh, of Bethlehem. So David, he's out in the wilderness. He's feeling downcast. One day he's he's feeling hot and tired and, and discouraged. And he mentions in passing kind of nonchalantly, just sort of musing out loud. He says this in 2 Samuel 23, 15. He says, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate at Bethlehem. This was not a command. This was not even a request. It was just a sort of sigh, uh, a daydream. David was thirsty, and he remembers how good the water was from his hometown of Bethlehem. And perhaps he's also longing for the day uh, when his kingdom will be restored. And he could go to Bethlehem whenever he wanted to. Nonetheless, three of his mighty men, they look at each other. They don't say a thing. They steal away, uh, put their swords and their armor on, um, and and brought a a jug, an empty jug, a, a water jug. And they fight their way through enemy lines, down to Bethlehem, up to the well, draw the water, Probably one guy drawing the water, but the other two are fighting everybody off at the risk of their lives. They had to fight their way back, and they come to David and present to him the water. And he is absolutely stunned. He knows they risked their lives. He knows that in essence, they gave their lives in a sense, uh, fully to serve him. Uh, Because they knew that there was a good chance they would not make it back. So they totally put their lives on the line to do this voluntary act of love and devotion for their king. And David, he's so moved, he can't even drink it. But he offers it up to the Lord. Look at Second Samuel twenty-three sixteen. We read this. But David refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord, saying, Far be it from me, Lord, uh, to do this. Uh, is this not the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. 
David poured it out as a sacred drink offering to the Lord, saying, I am not worthy of this kind of devotion on the overhead. Now, here's the point. If you are really devoted to someone, if you really love them, if you belong to them, if you do anything you could to delight that person, to honor that person, then there's really no difference for you between a command, a request, even a sigh. You don't look at all, uh, you don't look at all rules and regulations and try to figure out which of the ones I really need to keep. So, for example, if somebody comes up to me and says, David, I really want to obey the word of God. I'm thinking about uh, this tithe thing. You know, the Bible says we're supposed to give 10%. I need to know, is this before or after taxes? I'm thinking it's after taxes. Now, without getting into specific minutia, that's not sermon about tithing. <laughs> Do you see how, this heart, how far this hard attitude is from the attitude of David's mighty men who went to fetch the water for their king? Do you see how we, about these Minutia questions about tithing belie a different heart attitude than the one that David's men had. Notice the question. What do I have to do to be in compliance with the law? These three muddy men did not ask, what do I have to do to obey the king? No one said their heart was this. What can I do to show love and honor and devotion to my king? They were willing to do anything to bring joy to the heart of the one they were devoted to. Anything at all. Uh, they went way beyond a command. They went way beyond any request. On the overhead. If you're to be holy, you not only belong to God, and you stop living for yourself, and you start to live for God and for others, and you, you think all that out, and you obey the things that you know are commanded, but also this. You also look for ways to please the Lord. And you do it out of delight. It doesn't even feel like obedience, but it is. So on the overhead, number one, to be holy, you've got to engage your mind. Number two, your will. And now finally, three, your heart. At the end of the, our passage, we read this, 1 Peter 1.17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here, how? In reverent fear. Now this, there's this phrase, uh, to live in the fear of God, it's, one, it's one, actually one of the main themes of the Bible, and we've got to understand this if we're to walk in holiness. This is the heart of what will motivate you and create the desire in you to please him and delight him and to give yourself to him. The word fear here doesn't necessarily mean you're scared, uh, that you're going to get uh, destroyed, No. In fact, in our passage, even though Peter's talking about judgment day, but he says you call upon a father who judges each person's work. Notice again, it's, it's the father who judges. Your father. Now, fathers can be strict. Fathers have standards. But fathers do not destroy their children. Fathers love their children. So this verse doesn't mean you should be cared or going to be destroyed on judgment day. Whether fear in the Bible, it means awe and wonder. It means reverence and respect. It means not just doing something out of a sense of duty, but rather doing it out of awe and wonder, reverence and respect, because your heart is engaged with the Lord. Your heart should be engaged with awe and wonder and reverence and respect. Why? Look at verse 18, 1 Peter 1, 18. 
For you know it was not with perishable things, like silver or gold, that you were redeemed from your empty way of life and the down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Messiah, a lamb without blemish or defect. Your heart needs to be filled with awe and wonder, looking at the fact that Yeshua's blood, his sacrificial blood, has been shed for you. That's the key. 1 John 17, 19. Yeshua's praying to his father the night before his crucifixion. He makes this amazing statement that, that ties all this together. He says, Father, for my disciples' sake, I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified. Sanctification, it means to be made holy. Yeshua says, I sanctify myself. What does he mean? Does he mean I'm going to become moral? No, of course not. He, he was already perfectly moral. So what does he mean when he says, I sanctify myself? He means I give myself away. I set myself apart. Uh, I'm not going to live for myself. Uh, I'm going to live for them. Uh, I'm going to die. I'm going to be tortured. Uh, I'm going to sacrifice myself for them, for my followers. Yeshua says, I'm giving myself away to, for them, for their sake. So that we might be sanctified. Made holy. Yeshua loves you. All he wants is you to know his joy and, and, and the freedom of not living for yourself anymore. And I'm going to put it this way on the overhead. The claustrophobia of living for ourselves. Uh, the crappedness of it. Uh, uh, the narrowness of spirit. Uh, the infinite regress of spiraling down upon yourself. Saying, I'm not getting what I deserve. Uh, and why are they getting their prayers answered? Not me. What about him? What about her? What about me? Yeshua says, I love you so much. I want you to know the freedom of being so flooded with my love that you don't need your self-centeredness and your self-focus anymore. So you no longer live for yourself, but you live for the Lord and for others. And so what Yeshua is saying here in John 17 is, I'm giving myself away. And when you see him doing that for you, shedding his lifeblood for you, when you sense the sheer ocean of his love for you, to the degree you see him giving himself away for you, to that degree you'll be able to give yourself away to him. It is clear and simple, but at the same time deep and profound. When you see him sanctifying himself, setting himself apart for you, you'll be able to set yourself apart for him. To the degree you see what your sin cost him, to that degree you'll be holy. Yeshua's holiness, giving himself away for your sake, it's awesome, it's beautiful. So today, on this high holy day, look to him. His atoning work for you on this Rosh Hashanah until you fully give yourself to him and thus are made holy. Amen. Let's stand and pray. I the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Father, on this Rosh Hashanah day that uh, we ask you for the blood of the Lamb, for the blood of Yeshua the Messiah. We ask, Lord, make us holy, even as you are holy. Help us to flee evil desires, uh, that all the desires that have enslaved us in the past. Lord Yeshua, we wholly give ourselves away to you.
out of pure love and devotion. Lord Yeshua, your wish is my command. Your sigh is my command. I belong to you. I'm yours. You are my king. Because you first gave yourself fully to us, Yeshua. You sanctified yourself, set yourself apart for our sake so that we may be saved and sanctified in you. So that we in turn, in holy fear, we can set ourselves apart wholly for you. And so as, our, as that shofar blast reminds us, Lord, on this appointed time of Rosh Hashanah, when you command us to have a, a sacred assembly, when you promise to meet with us, uh, the, the shofar exhorts us to wake up, to consider our ways. So, Lord, now we bow before you and we repent. We ask you to cleanse us of our filth uh, and sins by the blood of Yeshua, the once for all perfect sacrifice to whom all of your appointed times point. Lord Yeshua, on this Rosh Hashanah, I declare right now to the heavens that my heart belongs to you. I renounce living for myself. My heart belongs to you. I vow to live for you on your terms, to delight in you, to honor you, because you, Yeshua, are my love. And I was bought with a price. I'm not my own. And therefore, I commit to glorifying you, Lord, in all that I say and all that I do. And I pray this all in your name, Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Amen.